This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. panel um, Chris Weaver who is the founder and CEO of Macro Advisory also former head of research at pretty much every investment bank in Moscow in the last 30 years uh, and by Christoph Ruhl um, old friend um, who is currently um, if I'm right chief economist with the Center of Global Energy Policy at Columbia University SIPA but also, and I always get this wrong, um, the economist at the World Bank in Moscow in the 90s, or was it the IMF? It's the World Bank, isn't it? Yes, Simon was right, yeah. But Siba was wrong, and that they don't have a chief economist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also at BP. Um, we were hopefully going to be joined by Elena Rybakova, who's deputy chief economist with um, the Institute for International Finance, but she's actually on holiday in Latvia, and. Uh, She's trying to connect and we will join, we'll add her if she manages to sort that out. Um, so yes, guys, the um, topic on the table for today is the uh, oil price caps that are being proposed. Because uh, as we know, the, despite the extreme sanctions that were brought in from March onwards onto Russia and the effect that had uh, in reducing the exports, um, uh, that actually because of the price spike, Russia's making more money than ever. And so now on the table as part of the seventh package of sanctions is a proposal to cap the price that people pay. And the mechanism to enforce that is proposed by using um, the West's virtual control of the marine insurance business, 95% of which I think comes out of London, in order to force people to comply. And before I say another word to everyone who's listening, if you want to ask questions, please make use of the, uh, the chat function at the bottom of the Zoom window, and we will answer those as we go. So I throw that out there. Um, I'm reading a lot, and a lot of people are saying that it's not going to work. It's not going to be an effective uh, mechanism. Um, I don't know, what's your view? Maybe, Christoph, you want to jump in first? On the price cap, I do think it's not going to, it's unlikely to work, and I do think it's not a good mechanism. As always, when politicians are starting to freeze prices, you get all sorts of, the law of unintended consequences is likely to hit your heart. Yeah. So let's first look at what the idea is. You know, the idea is that you have Russian oil coming out of Russia, obviously, and uh, in those in those constituencies who would voluntarily participate, that's first of all the, U uh, the European Union, they would uh, put a price cap on that on that Russian oil, uh, and then the theory is that that Russian oil would go elsewhere, uh, presumably to Asia and so, and uh, and there nobody would pay more than the price cap, why not? Because why should they pay more if they can get it cheaper? So that has a, this has a, lot, a lot of shaky stuff and one big principle flaw. The shaky stuff starts with you know, oil fungible because the European Union in, in its infinite wisdom has of course sanctioned the oil which is on ships, which is the fungible part which can go elsewhere, not the one on pipelines for which it would be easier to in introduce a, a price stop like that. So the, the idea that there would be enough oil available, but at a cheaper price is likely to be undermined because when that fungible oil leaves and goes into Asia, there's not just one monopolistic or monopsonistic buyer like China 
who then offers the Russians the same low price. There's a whole plethora of potential buyers, China, India, a lot of small countries in between. Mm. And if the, pri if the price that the EU enforces would be below the current discounts, it would be, say, 20, 25 bucks, then why would not, when China pays 25, India say, oh, come on, I'll pay you 26, and uh, 20, 27, and so on. And so you have uh, an increase in that, an undermining of the chances. So it would only have a chance of working if a large share of global demand would participate, and that's the first flaw. I don't see the political willingness of India or China at the moment in doing this. Because of course, we've let me seen just say already. the big principle right. thing, and then we can. The big principle thing here is that people think of this as Russia just being either passive or stopping to sell oil, but Russia. This mechanism, like all uh, things which limit prices, will lead to more demand. The oil price gets cheaper, so people will make more oils. And that will drive up the price of oil of the non-Russian variety, of the, the global price of oil. And that alone would, uh, at some point, put pain to the stop, if not a large share of the world participates in it. But here is a policy instrument for Russia which can leverage that uh, fact that lower prices lead to higher demand. We already have a situation of excess demand. Now a price cut comes in. Consumers, of course, will ask more, not less also. Excess demand gets a bit bigger, global price rises. Now all Russia needs to do is to gradually scale down its exports a little bit, driving global prices up even higher. And in this way, you will see cracks emerging into whoever the sanctioning alliance is pretty soon. And I think that's just a political fact mm. and, and that will make it unworkable. So let's start dive into this because there's two aspects here. Um, one is like who's willing to ignore the sanctions and buy Russian oil. And the other one is the whole thing, the mechanism with the insurance. But if we start with like who's willing to buy, uh, China last week, I think overtook Germany as Russia's biggest buyer of oil. And of course, the Indians, you know, it's gone up by hundreds of percent, albeit from a very, very low base. I think it was 1% of their imports and it's got up to something like 6 or 7%, or maybe more. But um, like you say, that, well, I mean, our, our view on this is that the, the West, the EU, America, they're all on board. Germany's promised to, to finish sanctions or, or finish imports uh, by the end of the year. But the rest of the world is not on board and they're taking advantage of these cheap prices. And the Indians particularly have been loading up on Russian crude and refining it. And there's even reports that they're then selling it on to the States. So the States is getting Russian oil through the back door. Uh, Chris, I mean, you, you used to be an OPEC advisor. I mean, you know the markets well. I mean, it's just, it's just not going to work, is it? If you offer people cheap oil <coughs> yeah, who are not aligned, they're just they're going to buy it. Yeah, look, there's a couple of things here. Uh, first thing I could say without sort of naming names or whatever, but I was listening to a couple of senior officials here in Moscow uh, over the weekend, over the last couple of days, kind of obviously probing this particular question. And, and the absolute kind of, you know, kind of uh, universal position or consensus, I suppose, is that if, if uh, the US and, and Europe, the G7 tried to impose price caps Russia would stop exporting. I mean, they, they will be stubborn. Uh, they will be knee-jerk reaction. And I know you could say, well, how could you keep that up? You're kind of cutting off the nose. But given if, if Russia were to stop exporting, you know, uh, West uh, as a reaction to this, then the, the assumption in, in Moscow is that Europe would be in a much more severely difficult position, which it would not, governments would not be able to manage kind of politically or socially, uh, Russia could ride it out because the assumption is it wouldn't last very long given the scale of the disruption. But 
pretty much everybody I talked to and listened to had the same reaction. If they do that, we're cutting off all the oil. The idea that Russia would, you know, as I saw from one, uh, uh, one position coming out of Brussels, you know, they were calculating what the Russian cost of production is. And, you know, we're doing it quite actually quite well based on the ruble and different costs. And then they were saying, well, okay, now we know where the cost of production is. We can set the price cap at $5 above that. So they mm. make some money and we get good, you know, cheap oil. And I'm thinking, well, like, what planet are you living on? Uh, anyway, so that's for the Russian position is just simply not going to happen. The second point is that, you know, Russia is already selling anyway at a discount, as you say, or if you look at the prices right now in the market, I see that Brent's trading at $101 and Euros is trading at 81. So it's a 20% or a $20 discount at this stage and, and some of the deals that are now being done. And that's the price, remember, that's going into the system. So that's, uh, that's not Russia offering any discounts to India or to, you know, China to buy more oil or to the other Asian markets who are undoubtedly getting uh, discounts to buy extra oil. But, you know, the, the, the market price for euros going west right now is, is 20% less um, anyway. Uh, it's fine for Russia because it's, uh, uh, that's kind of more or less in line with the average price of last year and it's twice as much as the year before. Uh, so, you know, for, from Russia's point of view, as you say, making lots of money and it's a situation they're quite happy with. And uh, I think this is something that you also hear from officials in Moscow is, look, you're already getting a discount. You know, uh, the European economy is benefiting uh, compared to, say, global prices relative to the U.S. economy, for example, which the U.S. typically, let's say, it's paying the Brent price. Just I know that's very naive, but just in general, mm. uh, whereas Europe is getting the euros price and, and, and that's uh, already at a discount. So it also means there isn't huge incentive. The, the, the incentive for this is coming out of Brussels, but it's not coming out of, it's not coming from the buyers or the traders. They're already getting a good deal in Russian oil mm. and Russia's quite happy with the situation as it is right now. Uh, you know, one last, I know I'm jumping out of the place, but on the Indian side, that is something that I think is now clear from, or the Russians believe is clear. I mean, they, they've always kind of focused on the, the sanctions against refined product rather than against crude. Uh, you know, as you know, Russia is exporting an average of about 2.4 million barrels of refined product into Europe every day. And, and this has arisen because of environmental policies in Europe, the kind of the block on refinery expansion or new refineries across Europe. Uh, and it's different. It's easier for them, to, for European buyers to simply have bought from Russia, where Russia has been adding refinery capacity. And the same thing in, in some parts of the US, the Northwest. Last year, Russia sent two uh, flotillas uh, of, of tankers with diesel to the US Northwest, I think each one containing 4 million barrels to alleviate shortages. So there is a huge refinery problem, capacity mm. problem in, in the Europe and in the US. Um, right now, to some extent, that's being taken care of with India because they've got refinery surplus. So that's one of the route, but everybody's paying a lot more, you know, mm. routing Russian oil into Indian refineries and then the refined product going back to Europe because that's all, the only place they can get it. Uh, yeah, again, it just shows you that there's, yeah. there's nobody connecting the dots here. So to come back yeah. to the, the oil price cap thing, um, is there a price? Is there a cap? I mean, you're saying that if, I mean, I just read your note and, and if the US think that they could take production costs plus $1 and then that will work. Uh, and it won't because the Russians will just thumb their nose at that. 
But against that, is there a price, uh, a cap higher where the Russians would be tempted to, you know, because they need the revenue and that yeah. you could you could bring down and, and squeeze the Kremlin, uh, its revenue stream from this without actually killing. The I would say, that, yeah. Sorry, Chris. No, I, I think there's too many pieces on the floor already now. So uh, if you really want to think that through and answer that question, you have to, you have to step back one. Let me just make three points. One is, this is not for nothing. It is genuine economic warfare, right? So there is no way in which you can have cost-free sanctions. Uh, in this particular case, the price cap has nothing to do with the US because the US, Australia, Canada are the only three countries who do not import Russian oil at the moment of the sanctioning alliance of the G7. Uh, and not by accident, they're all exporting countries themselves, right? But what is the fundamental problem? Fundamental problem is that Russia has produces eight, nine, nine and a half million barrels per day in the market of 100. That's something uh, you cannot take out without severe price increases elsewhere. And what the sanctioning alliance, the G7, wants to avoid, of course, is that that damages their economy. But this is the first part. When it damages their economy or not, or to an extent they would like to incur damage from higher prices or not, that's a political variable to a large extent. And you cannot repeat, not under any scenario, have sanctions which will not increase prices and damage your economy. So the, the one implication of everything we're going to say is that this will be a costly exercise, no matter how the design is. Number two, the discount. Here, I think the European Union and the Americans have it right. The discount exists because the system has been severely shocked because traders don't want to touch oil because you can't get insurance because you can't uh, get cheap shipping rates and so on and so forth. If you leave the system alone now without punishment for those who consume Russian oils and with only these three countries are named import, cutting the imports, which are basically meaningless, then the discount will disappear. The system will re-equilibrate. Russian oil will be a little bit more expensive because of the longer ways. Alternatives will be found for payment systems. You will see guys in suitcases with money traveling around. Alternatives will be found for insurances, which we take on by nation states for shipping rent and so on. And the discount will disappear. So you need to keep pressure on the system if you want to Russia at least, at least lose money on the price side of the revenue equation, the volume times prices. And third, there is a it's not even hidden, but there is, of course, another agenda, which is very important. It is not the case that Russia could just simply cut down its oil exports. Part of the sanctions was targeted towards volumes, not, not only, so revenues, which everybody wants to harm for Russia is volumes times prices, clearly, right? Now we talk about prices, but part of the target was always volume. Why? Because of the structure of Russian oil production. You have in the Middle East, you have giant fields and giant wells. And these wells producing millions of barrels of dollar per day, literally in Saudi Arabia, you can scale up and down with relative technical ease. In Russia, you have giant fields with literally tens of thousands of small wells. When you damage them by shutting them in, you're hard to restart, very expensive to restart. Once oil production collapsed with the Soviet Union 30 years ago, it took forever and a lot of Western technology and investment to bring it back to Soviet levels. Now it's, of course, considerably above it, but it was sort of slightly declining already. And when, and this is one of the hidden, uh, one of the hopes, or not so hidden, as I said, agendas of the sanction 
preparation is that when you manage to bring it down, not just by 1 million, but by 2 or 3 million Russian production, that then would damage production capacity. And that's a long-term problem. And in conjunction with all these sanctions and technology, very hard to fix for Russia. And so we should keep that uh, in, in, in mind as well. Overall, these things, when we then talk about, last part about the price sanctions, um, what economists, of course, have much longer suggested, instead of this relatively simple price mechanism, which will backfire because it creates more demand, is something which is formally equivalent, but a bit more elegant, which is to tax the Russian oil. But I think it won't work for the same reasons as price cap doesn't work, but maybe that's also something can we, we Can we talk about, talk about the tax alternative in, in a minute? Uh, I, I just wanted to... Um, come back to the, the problem with price in so much as the cap, uh, it kind of assumes that the prices will stay where they are now and that all you'll do is you'll shut off a certain share of that money from Russia by you know diverting the money into escrow or whatever. I mean, the Russians won't get it. But surely as soon as you introduce this price cap mechanism because of the disruptions it will cause, the prices of oil, the price of oil will go shooting up. And so, then the leakage, the Russians will make even more money from the leakage by selling to India and China. I mean, what will be the impact on the price of oil if this uh, effort is launched? Because it's just going to screw with everybody's working day, isn't it? Yeah, and the, the, the other, there's another factor here that's part that is, you know, relevant for your question, which is that, you know, we have OPEC plus now, uh, a, a different structure in terms of the people making key decisions in this, like the Saudis, like the Emiratis, whatever. They have a different, it appears to me, and, uh, you know, again, uh, Christopher, it's certainly be interesting what he, his view is, having also lived down there and been, been there very close. But it seems to me that the, uh, you know, the Gulf states are nothing like as compliant as they used to be. Uh, in terms of, well, we lose a couple of billion Russian barrels, we get it from, from the Saudis and we get it from OPEC, because it's the same issue we're now hearing from the Qataris about gas, like the Europe said, well, we just buy more Qatari gas and they pressed uh, Doha to do that. But of course, Doha, the, the Qataris are saying, yeah, that's fine, we'll invest the billions of dollars needed to boost our production if you give us a 20-year you know, uh, purchase agreement. Uh, and of course, Europe doesn't want to do that because as soon as this conflict is over and Europe kind of gets back to some sort of, you know, previous schedule, the whole kind of, uh, uh, you know, carbon management uh, emissions will all be very much back on the table. So nobody wants to commit to 20 years purchase of gas or, or any other sort of hydrocarbons because, you know, waiting in the wings is still the you know, the, the, the key issue, which is uh, to get away from hydrocarbons as fast as possible. Uh, but you now have a dilemma, and, and we've heard this from, from Crown Prince Mohammed in, in Saudi Arabia uh, a couple of years ago uh, when, when kind of OPEC Plus was starting. Uh, again, the, the America was pushing for more volume of oil, uh, or maybe it was before, but it was around the last few years, more volume of oil. And as Christoph said, the Saudis, of course, uh, and Emiratis with, with relatively little uh, you know, effort could, could raise production, but it's still going to cost several billion dollars. And, and their attitude was that if we're going to spend those billions of dollars, you have to guarantee to buy it long term, not just for a few weeks. Mm. So that's a, it, it's a relevant kind of input to the argument, because uh, if, if the West is going to do something that reduces the flow of Russian oil, uh, then the assumption 
that that volume will be replaced for the time period you need it, not for the time period that the producers need it, but the time period you need it until you can wean yourself away. That's the huge flaw in that argument because mm. that volume isn't going to be there. We're hearing it in in, in 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 gas, and I think that's you know again it's it's why we we're now seeing the discussion moving towards if we can have a price cap, then volumes will remain and, and Russia will get less, but volumes will remain because I think people are now beginning to understand the alternative volumes will not be there unless Europe you know considerably compromises its uh, environmental goals and mm. keeps buying oil and gas for much longer than producers need. And they mm. won't do that. We can't do that. That, because brings me, that brings me to my next question, because uh, how effective are the sanctions being? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, ridding yourself of oil, uh, Russian oil completely by the end of the year. But the production did dip, uh, I think, in April, May, because um, Russia was doing about 11 million barrels a day, and then I think it went down to about 10.3. But the latest, the last month's uh, data says it's gone up again. It's at 10.7. So it seems all of these sanctions that are going on has actually not affected the volumes at all. Um, and that the exports, um, there I'm less clear as to whether Russia is exporting the same amount as it did pre-war. Sure. Now, are, are well, India and China soaking up you know, the, the, the volume that would have gone to, to, uh, to Europe. Is that what's happening? So the, uh, the answer to that one is that crude exports did decline and then recovered, but marginally. And uh, product exports, very importantly, uh, are also in decline and they're contributing to these high product prices. So when you look around the world now and you see these high gasoline and kerosene and other prices, and keep in mind, nobody buys oil for its own sake to drink it, right? Mm -hmm. People buy it because it provides services. Uh, and for these services like heat and mobility, you need to refine the crude oil into, into diesel and gasoline and kerosene. Refining margins are on an absolute historical record, usually one or two bucks, three bucks maybe, now they're 30 bucks. Right? Mm. And that makes the high street prices, so to speak, on top of all the uh, vagaries of the crude oil market, which we discuss. Now, to your original question, which I don't think was answered, what would happen if a price cap uh, came to pass? You have to think of the world in terms of uh, a dual price for the same commodity for oil, which is never mm. a good idea. But you would have a price cap uh, for Russian oil among those countries who adhere to it. Uh, and then you would have a global price for Russian oil. Uh, sorry, a global price for crude oil. And to the extent that the price cap requires more shifting around of Russian oil, to the extent that it requires less or leads to less consumption of Russian oil, to the extent that Russia itself would react by exporting less, the global price for oil would come under more pressure and go up even further. That's the economic cost the sanctioning countries would have to occur. And that is something uh, which Russia can, which I mentioned initially, which, which is the card Russia can play to just ratchet up this price until the sanctioning countries break because they are not willing to take uh, what, you know, to, to, to incur the economic costs of, of all of that. In my view, sanctions could work, but not in this kind of decentralized manner with price caps or with uh, even, even taxes or, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. We see that in gas markets. Right? This is a very interesting comparison. First of all, let me say that the oil sanctions as well here are different from what we have seen in history because the previous oil sanctions against Iran, Iraq, Venezuela, so they were always centrally enforced. 
meaning that if anybody in the world, whether it's China or France or, or India, violated a US sanction against Iranian oil, they would be punished with secondary sanctions. This one here is different because more, so far countries have made their own decisions on what they buy and what they not buy from Russia, but nobody has enforced it. Nobody is being punished for Russian oil. Mm. And this kind of decentralized and voluntary approach has actually carried us quite far. Now, why the comparison with gas markets? Because if you look at Europe and Russian gas, there you have both components. The gas from Russia can only go to Europe, similar to oil in a pipeline, right? It's stuck. Mm. There's no pipeline from Western Siberia to Asia. Whatever doesn't go to Europe is stranded and Russia uses the revenues. And there is no centralized European policy with, with you know, lowest common denominator and the force that everybody agrees on all of that in gas. So what has happened? Four European countries have already weaned them off completely from Russian pipeline gas imports, Lithuania, Netherlands, Denmark, and Bulgaria. That's 16% of the gas from pipeline exports, which are gone already. Others, big countries among them, like Germany, have done the best they can to minimize consumption of Russian gas. And as a result, Russian gas, pipeline gas exports into uh, the European Union used to be 40% of their gas consumption is now down to 20%. And this has continued to last. And this step-by-step -step procedure has led better results than forcing, uh, you know, letting the whole block being held up by Hungary and forcing them to some silly oil arrangement and moreover this gas which is which is not consumed anymore by these countries are mentioned or by uh, big ones like germany or italy is unlikely to ever come back and that makes russia nervous and that explains why you see this pressure on the gas market so and on the oil market i agree yeah. with crystal so they they will eventually we have already seen the beginning of that to be honest the blocking mm. of kazakh oil with this phony environmental excuse mm. of, of, the, of ship, shipping through officers that's already uh, i think the beginning of Russia's attempt to try to increase the global price of oil in response to this dangerous discussion of a price cap. Let's and, uh, um, let's talk briefly about um, the in, the enforcement, um, which is going to be done. Or the proposal is to use the insurance um, schemes and just say that any ship that's taking oil to a buyer where they haven't agreed to the price cap, um, then the insurance companies will be threatened with sanctions. You can't get insurance, so you can't send it. But it seems to me there too, there's a lot of leakage. Uh, I was just looking at the, the safety certification and the international body has 11 members, but only four of them have signed up, including the States, the UK, France, and I think Canada it was. And the Indians have gone and certified the entire Russian fleet, some mm. comflots, have given everybody, so they just ignored it. Uh, and then with this certification, you can get insurance. And again, they're now proposing to use, um, I forget the name of the company, it's one of the big Russian insurers. Um, and Ingostrak, I think, is also doing this. Uh, and I oh, think yes. the buyers, the, the buyers are, are going to accept that. They accept Russian insurance, although, and the, the, the CBR just put a billion dollars into the capitalization of the, uh, the insurance companies in order to like, make them believable. What do, you, what do you think, Chris? Yeah, I, uh, well, I think it goes back to what Christoph says, is that this is a fragmented approach to sanctions, unlike what we saw in, in Iran and Venezuela. And, and I guess it has to be a fragmented approach because uh, Russia's position is considerably larger. And also it's very important in other commodities because, of course, 
you know, if, if Russia were to, uh, what we say in the West, take the hump, or if it was to, you know, uh, it, 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 uh, you know, and cut off supply, well, there's a whole other, you know, uh, basket of commodities that are important to the global economy, uh, metals, timber, you know, uranium, etc. So it's in a different category, and therefore I'm basically just saying we understand why it has to be this, uh, this approach rather than a global, um, a global approach. And, and so long as this kind of fragmented approach continues, then these loopholes are, are these exemptions or the ability to create exemptions as the Indians are doing in the insurance sector, um, you know, will emerge. And it's difficult to see how we could get to a situation where sanctions are applied and enforced against Russia in the same way that they have been enforced against Iran. Uh, and again, it just comes down to the, the consequences, the economic consequences in Europe and for the global economy uh, would, be, would be immense. And, and therefore, you know, you really, I personally believe that there's no way we will get to a point where the, we will have the Iranian-style enforcement and that these loopholes... Are you saying Russia's um, too big to sanction? Isn't that what you're saying? Is that uh, you, know, you can yeah, sanction yeah. Iran yeah, it's uh, but way. the consequences of attacking uh, Russia, Russia, because everybody yeah. then is looking at the impact on their own economies and they're like, all right, Iran, it doesn't really matter. Russia, it does matter. We're it not does. going. And, it, and it's not just no, it's because it's not just oil and gas. It's it's everything else. I mean, we have the discussions mm -hmm. going on about grains and food. But, you know, you look at all other metals where Russia is important. Mm. Uh, you know, it was reported last week, 28% of U.S. nuclear power plants are dependent on Russian uranium. And they say, oh, we get it from Kazakhstan. But then it's going to take four years to build processing plants in, in Kazakhstan or elsewhere to process that and to wean off Russian. So, yes, I think it, it sounds like a, you know, one Crystal, of the from, you disagree. Yes, I disagree with that. Okay. If we are saying there's enough oil in the world and metals and whatever else, the logical implications of that is that any country can be sanctions, including Russia. And what we have here uh, in, in Russia is, of course, a lot more difficult. And I don't see the uh, uh, I don't see a disadvantage of what you call this fragmented sanction. It has to be that way because right now you cannot globally enforce it uh, like Iran. That's true. But if the world is willing and to incur the cost of that, it can be done and uh, it has to go through the volume road, not only through the price road. It has to employ safety valves, which are there. I mean, there are OPEC countries currently under sanctions where you could have uh, negotiated releases like Iran, Venezuela, and OPEC countries with social strife and civil war like Libya and Nigeria, which with a little tender loving care could be made more productive. There are the, uh, the Gulf states, which are still you know, under the military umbrella of the US and want to do business with uh, Russia and which have kept spare capacity officially, officially for an emergency case. So the question is completely legitimate to ask them when, when is the emergency happening here. There is the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is already uh, used to the tune of 1 million barrels per, year, per day. And since then, if you have noticed, crude oil prices sort of have not escalated the mm -hmm. way most of us would have predicted if you had given a scenario a few months ago. And then most importantly, there is, of course, uh, where Biden has to bite his own bullets, and that's the US and the shale production. That is ratcheting up slower for many reasons than many have expected, but the potential is vast. 
So if Mr. Biden is serious, you know, he has to turn around and say, okay, forget about climate change right now. It's a bigger pivot, you know. Let's uh, produce as much as, as, as we can, drill, baby, drill, and then that can be done. Can that uh, be done for all and every of the Russian commodities? I don't know, but I do know that it's oil, which is the backbone of Russian uh, currency earnings, and that's oil, mm -hmm. gas, and coal in that order, which are the three biggest uh, coal it has already been done. And there it can be accomplished provided, very important, provided that the sanctioning part of the world is willing to incur the economic cost. And then the long term, of course, a very high oil price brings down oil demand and things will rebalance uh, probably with a demand lower than it otherwise would have. Well, so far, yeah, that's a political to... hurdle. And, we, we and see that willing to take it. Yeah, but that's the critical and, point right there is that the sanctioning uh, countries that the Western economy is willing to take the financial pain for the period of time uh, it takes. So I absolutely agree with you. So I, I mean to say that the world can't do without Russian uranium, but as I say, it is available elsewhere, but it's a four year period. It's an expensive transition. And the same with lots of other commodities. Of course, you can get them somewhere else or you can reduce away from them. Eventually you don't need them, but it is that transition period, multi-year transition and, and enormous cost of doing so. I don't see any appetite um, okay, now today that's, that's a different question. This is economic warfare. You don't fight a war without ammunition. It's going to be costly, yeah. of course, yes. but it can be done in principle. That's the first question. Is there political will? If you leave it to this decentralized approach, at least it becomes revealed and apparent pretty quickly whether countries are serious or not. Right. With this European model of forcing anyone into the same fold, you just create suboptimal outputs and allow countries to hide with every country doing the best it can, you will see who is interested or not. And then if there are not enough countries interested, then you lose the economic war. Yeah, I guess I, we're, we're, we're going to see next winter because we're not yeah. seeing it right now. I think that's also part of it. First of all, there is, you know, every day on the news that this tragedy taking place in East Ukraine. So of course, well, that's happening. You know, you can't complain of paying an extra few uh, cents uh, for a gallon of fuel or a liter of fuel or whatever, because people are dying. But let's get to the point, just hypothetically, we get to the point down the road, uh, hopefully in the autumn, where, where maybe there, there, there's less fighting or, 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 or it has stalemated into, in, in, into, into some sort of a ceasefire. And then the economic consequences start to pick up because winter is coming. Mm. Then the question, I think that's going to be the huge kind of period. Remember, it's also midterm elections in the US where inflation is already becoming uh, a debate and, and the future of, of prices and energy prices in the US. So it hasn't really started yet. You come into later this year, if, if uh, you know, the, all of these economic factors in Europe, uh, in the US are going to become a lot more visible and directly impact people to the extent that it's not happening today. And you know, I know, sorry, I know this is kind of a slight tangent, but I just wonder if the political will to from places like Brussels within the G7 to talk about actions that could severely reduce uh, Russian supply, even for a couple of years while it's replaced, uh, whether or not that will still be there when, when people are more, you know, more directly affected. So, Christoph, when we uh, when we talked just before this all kicked off, um, you, you brought up saying like if the sanctions are going to be severe, things like SWIFT, things like oil, that Europe would have to put itself on a war footing. And I actually got that idea about economic war, I think, from that conversation with you in the beginning. Um, and here we are now in what increasingly is being called an economic war. But I agree with Chris uh, here that I don't think that the, the sanctions so far have all been one way. They've been designed to wound Russia 
but not take any pain. And you can see in things like potash, there's all these exemptions because they don't want to affect the, uh, the farmers. And, and again, coming back to the, the case in point with the shipping, wasn't the, the Greek shipping companies exempted from the sixth round of package of, of yes. because they have half of the whole shipping, not the, shipping, not the insurance. So that comes back to your question, which wasn't answered. Uh, would this work for a while and temporarily would have a huge impact if, uh, if the European countries would uh, and the US and the G7 say for short. I mean, this is really, it's, it's first of all, it is economic warfare, whether we like it or not. You go to the dictionary, look up the definition, it just fits. So I like to keep separate the question, can something be done from will it actually be done in the sense that people have the politics and the morals and the stomach to do it. These are two different things. When we discuss, can it be done? I would maintain it can be done. The second, in this uh, economic warfare, if you would now take away the shipping lines and the shipping contracts and the insurance contracts, that would create severe problems uh, for, for Russian redirection of oils into Asia and for Asia uh, to take it off. It would eventually be fixed, like all these mm. things. You know? But uh, that would take years, so that would be a real uh, that would be a real advantage for the sanctioning countries. If but they doesn't the shipping and certainly the, can go on, will go they on. do it? Will they do it politically? You know, I don't want to speculate like Chris and hopefully there's a ceasefire by the fall. What do I know about the ceasefire? What I do know is that what has happened there was a blunder of such a tremendous order of magnitude that for Russia's own sake, I really hope that they get a bloody nose out of that. It's the only way that this can turn in a productive way I can see. And that's why I would be willing also on the normative side of the equation to say, yes, we should go for it. And I think it's to make the resolve in Europe or in the G7. And I look to Germany now, I think there's not many friends left who, who would say we give in. No yeah, no, I agree. But as I say, um, it seems up until now that mm -hmm. Europe has been very reluctant, and it's largely Europe that's paying the economic costs to take the pain of the sanctions. Um, but then, as you said in the beginning, you know, it's being inflicted on Europe largely through inflation uh, and slowdown. But um, it, it remains up in the air. Um, the Americans very clearly are going to keep fighting, you know, as the detractors say to the last Ukrainians. Uh, but I think in Europe it's becoming much more difficult uh, as the, 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 the economic pain uh, increases. Let me put to you, Christoph, in particular, you're sitting in Germany as you are. Um, it, was, it was suggested to me that, that uh, the German economic model has just been wrecked. And the data point people were talking, talk, uh, pointing to was the trade balance in Germany was negative for the first time in 30 years. And that the model here has been to take cheap Russian energy and use it to produce very cheaply, very high quality goods that Germany does. And that's what's been fueling it. And that if you take away that, that uh, cheap Russian energy, then the German model doesn't work half as well. I think the obvious answer to that is to carry on investing into green energy. But doesn't that sort of come together with this whole economic pain that they're not prepared to do? And this is why they keep importing gas while it hasn't been talked about as a sanction, because uh, the economic model here is a threat in, in a prosperous company, a country like Germany. So uh, you have to be really more careful, uh, I think, because number one, every country which produces and sells anything needs energy. So undisputed, and if you take away the energy, the economic model, it's not the model, it's the country and the economy which collapses. So there you're right. But then you look more closely, cheap Russian energy, no. 
for oil, it was paid at world market prices. Gas exports from Russia to Europe fetch a much higher price than gas exports to Asia. So it was expensive Russian energy. It was plentiful. But again, you look at this more closely and you see that uh, demand for oil and for coal and for gas were actually declining in, in Germany. And I think, uh, at least I know for oil, uh, for Europe at large. Since 1979, yeah, oil demand in the countries which constitute today's European Union is declining, has mm. peaked in 1979. That's a very, very long time. Uh, and I remember, so the, the place has always been a lot more energy efficient than, than the US or other places which it competes with, which is one of the reasons for the success of its exports, one of the reasons why they're comparatively cheap given the quality. And um, I think the, the uh, no, I forgot what, <laughs> forgot what, the, third, what the third point. Oh yeah, I, I, did, I used to do these statistics. So in the past and within this, presumably some band or so, it was the case for respect to Germany that when the oil price increased, German economy would improve because the trade in terms of trade would improve. Why? Because they managed despite, despite paying higher uh, prices for their oil to export more black Mercedes and capital goods and whatever they export into oil producing countries. Right? So an oil price increase came with an increase in the terms of trade, including energy. And so that's a sign of a very highly efficient economy. And I'm sure that all goes out of the window if you have prices of 150 or so. But in general, yes, every every economy breaks when you take away energy. Energy is, is, what, is the only thing which goes directly and indirectly into any kind of economic activity you can imagine, like, like labor. Is, but is, but given that, that like, Europe is more efficient than any other place sure. in the planet. But, but isn't that then, again, broadening it out, kind of uh, one of the maybe unintended consequences, but nevertheless a real consequence, of what we're seeing, which is that I guess we agree that even if there's no kind of universal enforcement like Iranian style sanctions or it takes a while, uh, Europe and the US, of course, will enforce very strictly, whereas Asia will, will absolutely look for whatever opportunities uh, it can to get cheap Russian energy. So that, uh, that differential is going to become a lot more pronounced. Asia is going to benefit from much cheaper uh, Russian energy, oil and gas, and whatever. I mean, we, there's talk now of, of Russia joining the long debated, you know, Turkmenistan to India gas pipeline and making it a lot bigger and shoving Russian gas directly into Pakistan and India over several years. Um, and other projects that we talked about. So you get that real shift in, in Russia focus to Asia at cheaper prices, which ironically is not too different from the price cap, I guess you're talking about. It's just differential, then you are massively uh, uh, shifting the global economic competitiveness uh, towards those countries, at least for a period until the Western economies yeah. get sufficient amount of- I think that's Putin's plan, isn't it? That's Putin's plan. I mean, one of the- But that's, a mistake. That's, that's another mistake mm. because this is true in the short term, given capacity yeah. and all that. Of course, it's a competitive advantage already in place when uh, China can get uh, 30% cheaper than, than say Japan and sure. Germany. But we know, I mean, we know that for a fact that over the medium to long term, it is the more efficient countries which are more productive and are more winning the export wars. It has always been the Japanese and the Germans and then now lately the Chinese of this world, which are just as efficient, but almost. And never the US who have become the big exporters of uh, you know, product produced commodities. Mm. And uh, that's not going to likely to change. So in a way, 
this sanctioning model, this meaning of all these very high oil prices, which have caused the adjustment in Germany, Japan, and other countries in the past, are an opportunity as well. If you want, if you have the stamina okay. and the long-term sure. thinking, yeah, it's because, in um, the short term, you're right. It's, it's, because, it comes back to the same point: it's going to be costly. Wars are costly. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, you <laughs> we, could. Uh, I know we're going to run out of time, but just it's just one last point, uh, and, and it's made for a different conversation. Uh, and this is like uh, this is not me sitting in not Moscow being naive or stupid, but I let me throw it out. Um, the pre-war, the whole debate, you know, about climate and moving towards renewable in, in, in Russia really was going nowhere. Uh, President Putin kind of talked about uh, climate uh, issues and renewable energy, but really there was no plan. It was very much, you know, Mr. Sechin and Rosneft and Mr. Miller and Gazprom, uh, you know, likely to dominate for the next 10, 15 years. And at that point, uh, as the rest of the world presumably would have reached their targets, Russia would have had nowhere to go and the economy would have collapsed at that point. So again, let me very naively say that even though this is going to be really expensive and painful and already is and likely to be more so next year for the Russian economy, it might not be a bad thing for them either, depending on how the war, of course, ends, because they'll be forced to address hydrocarbon dependency at an earlier stage. Again, I hope that doesn't sound too naive, but at least that would be another consequence. Can I jump in? I mean, we've got about uh, 10 minutes left and I wanted to, it seems the whole idea of price caps uh, has got a lot of holes in it and it's going to be very difficult. Um, but one alternative that's been suggested and one of the reasons why I asked Alina to join because she's championing this idea is to um, come with taxes instead. Uh, could you walk us through how that would actually work? I mean, Christoph, you, you mentioned it earlier, the instead of price caps, you tax instead. How does that work? It's pretty similar, actually. I think you probably could, I haven't done it, but you probably could show it's formally equivalent. So the way it works is, say you take one region, say Europe, and they say, we put a heavy tax on Russian oil. So we tax everything above 20, for example. As a consequence, the oil then goes elsewhere, say to China. China now sees that in the, the Russians only get 20 bucks net from the oil sales in Europe. Uh, and so they say, okay, we give you 20, 50, but not more. And so they still go to the same, to the same implicit level. It has the same flaws as the idea before. This would work if there's only one country or one customer uh, wanting the, the redirected Russian oil, but if there's also Indias and Malaysias and Thailands and Japan and whatever, and they come and say, we offer a little more, we offer a little more, so you have competition for the uh, taxed oil, then it won't work. Secondly, uh, taxing Russian oil, you know, is a proposition which goes far beyond limiting crude prices because that would also affect presumably refined products. It's almost impossible to chase, you know, uh, hydrocar Russian hydrocarbon molecules through the global refining system. Already today, Russian oil being sent to India, refined there, coming out as products, is universally recognized as Indian, not as Russian. And so you can't really control that it goes through X countries and, and, and all of that. So that makes it very hard to work. And number three, again, suppose an ideal world, everything works like clockwork and it, it puts China at a, or whoever the, the consumer without the taxes at a huge competitive short-term advantage because they now pay whatever their $20. The European customer pays $100 just as before. So it avoids the problem of the price cap that the demand will go up because the customer still pays the same for its gasoline and, and all of that. Uh, but Europe is for that reason, because its industry pays much more and a competitive advantage to China. And then to put insult to injury or whatever this is called, if the money really goes into an escrow account, which then is used to rebuild Ukraine, 
then we end up with the European consumer who paid 100 bucks all along financing the reconstruction of Ukraine, while the Indian consumer paid 20 bucks and doesn't have to finance anything. So it's not, very, it's not what the doctor ordered, really. So, and in the last, in the last few minutes of this, um, can I put to you a very simple question? Um, with the sixth package of reforms, uh, of sanctions that's gone through, we're now looking at a seventh package, which looks extremely difficult. Has has the sanctions run its course? Haven't haven't all the easy ones been done? And then going forward now, all of the sanctions that they're talking about are going to boomerang back and inflict significant pain. And in that sense, uh, and and does the U.S. the West have the power to enforce these these new sanctions? That the painful ones, the ones that are going to cost us money, have they got the power to enforce those? Chris, what do you think? Yeah, look, I think it's now uh, a waiting game uh, in the sense that. Um, the, you know, as we talked earlier, the impact of sanctions, particularly on the energy side, is likely to be felt more acutely and a lot more visibly uh, as we get into the winter. And you can see, you know, what Russia is doing with the gas in Nord Stream 1 right, uh, one right now, blaming the, the uh, Siemens gas, you know, the turbine part, etc. But Russia is essentially making sure that Europe does not come into the autumn or early winter with all of its gas reserves full because it'll want some leverage. So they've deliberately uh, slowed down gas volumes to make sure that Europe doesn't have enough gas to fill those reserves up too much more. Uh, so we are going to see the economic consequences, uh, say, much more visibly um, uh, in, in, in winter, very likely. And if you also then get a very cold, high demand in, in Asia, which we didn't have last year, then a lot of the LNG that's been coming to Europe will go back to Asia because it's contracted to there. So again, you, you know, the, 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 the economic pain uh, really hasn't been uh, felt to the extent that it might be. I won't say it will be, but, but, but it might be. Now, it's also the same in, in Russia. I mean, look, if I look at the window here in central Moscow, frankly, if I didn't look at the news, I wouldn't know there was anything going on. You know, shops are are full, okay, lot of shops, uh, brand shops are, are closed, uh, you know, say fashion shops, et cetera, but you can get everything online. It's all switched to online platforms. Um, you know, even McDonald's is now reopening with exactly the same menu. It tastes exactly the same, good or bad. Um, you know, and, you know, someone like Coca-Cola announced a few weeks ago they were taking all product off the market and, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. So, but I, my, I, I guess, let's not be naive, the, the consequences of the sanctions will probably start to emerge also in Russia as, as maybe supplies dry up, as, con, you know, components, uh, factories, etc. Some will definitely suffer that. So the economic consequences of what's happening in Europe and Russia are likely to be more visible as we get into next year. Uh, Russia's position will deteriorate next year uh, because right now it's making a lot of money from exporting still, you know, a lot of oil uh, products into Europe because the sanctions don't kick in until the start of the year. Uh, gas is a sale commodities, prices are high, but that will change next year. The gas exports will go down. Uh, it will maybe, volumes will stay high, but added bigger discounted prices. So Russia's kind of Kind of strong financial position today, which we talk about a lot. There's mm -hmm. enough money to fund the military and enough money to fund the economy, etc. That really will start to change from next year also. So it'll be a case of 
who's going to feel the most pain? Will it be the European economy in particular, uh, as it suffers the consequences of energy, uh, you know, depending on what's happening in the rest of the world, or, or will it be the Russian economy as finally the consequences of sanctions and the government's inability to keep mm. paying for everything will start to deteriorate? And I think, you know, we, we get into that uh, economic consequences uh, position much more so next year. Right now we're talking about lots, lots of scenarios, lots of ifs, lots of buts. It hasn't really hit either side yet. It's still a game. But you, next you year agree, it will be different. You agree? Yes. I mean, like short term, Russia's looking in a strong position and managing to evade this, but long term, the sanctions are going to be devastating. I would have even a problem with the short term when I look at that. But I, I, this is the first important part, what the argument Chris just made. You know, of course, you know, nobody wins from wars, economic or not, or from, from sanctions. And the impact, Russia has a lot of money, but it can't buy the things it needs for its money, whether this is cars or, or microchips or whatever. And that will have impact. So, so the first point which Chris made is essentially saying we can't look at the energy sector in isolation. It's embedded in the economic. The economy will undoubtedly know stuff because of the sanctions. And the longer this grinds on, the more severely. So I completely agree. And it's also true for the, for the West. Then there are two other uh, points worth raising when you ask, can sanctions be sustained or ask the, will they accomplish their goals or not? Uh, one is that if Russia makes the mistake, and I really say this by purpose of cutting down gas or oil exports, that would greatly help the, the G7 and the sanctioning alliance. Why? Because if they do that in Europe and their gas will one way or another be saved or replaced or whatever, people are now talking about a grand bargain you know, of LNG contracts into Asia being voluntarily replaced with coal and the, and, the, and the LNG shipped to Europe instead. People compare it with the Berlin airlift. The structure mm. can only be done under the guidance of the US. Things like that may happen or not, and, uh, maybe just a coal replacement. But to the extent that Russia scales down its own exports, oil or gas, you know, this is going to be likely to be very, very difficult to be scaled up and mostly impossible to scale up again. So that would address the volume side better than the Western sanctions have been in place. And, and the other thing to, to keep in mind is I do think that the scope of the G7 to live with uh, higher energy prices and less energy is not exhausted at all. If we look just at oil and we compare, we always compare nominal prices and we compare uh, the real oil price, so adjusted for inflation, plus adjusted for the efficiency improvement in the way we use oil, then the high price period, which we had from 2011 to 2013, in today's prices would be about 150 bucks for crude oil. That's uh, what we have right now, plus these monstrous refining margins. These refining margins of 30% will go away. The global refining system always readjusts uh, over time. This is an additional buffer, which we didn't mention earlier. So I think the capacity of the G7 to actually endure uh, economic costs is much larger ultimately than, than, than they themselves realize. It's more a function of how weak are politicians and how convincing can they make the case, like Biden in his, in his election campaign. There, I'm, I'm ignorant, I'm, uh, I'm agnostic, but uh, I think it is definitely worth trying and it has further to go than we think at the moment. Okay. Overall, it will not be efficient, of course, everybody will lose. That's yeah. unfortunately yeah, true. Winter is coming and it's full of terrors. <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, Chris, Christoph, thank you very much for joining me. That was very illuminative. Um, great pleasure to talk to you. It's a shame Alina wasn't here. We'll do it again, I'm sure, and maybe take on gas when Gazprom cuts it off at the end of this month, and then we have a new crisis to deal with. But in the meantime, thank you very much. And for everyone who's out there listening, uh, I hope you enjoyed. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Um, I recommend uh, plug the sites, go to intellinews.com slash welcome. There you can find various goodies, including links to uh, our alerts and our YouTube channel where this video will be uh, available immediately. We, we press stop. And I highlight um, Editor's Picks. It's a free daily email digest that contains the best stories from the last 24 hours from our team. So until we see you again, thank you very much for taking the time. All the best. Goodbye. Thank you.